China? What are Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider here today with Scott Kennedy. Scott is the director of the project on Chinese business and political economy at the at CSIS in Washington D.C. Previously, he taught at IU. Scott recently published a report entitled "The Fat Tech Dragon: Looking at Innovation in China." So, before we jump into that, let's welcome Scott to the show. Jordan, I'm happy to be here and、uh, looking forward to the discussion today about、uh, the fat tech dragon or other aspects of Chinese innovation. So, before we jump into、uh, the topic, I'd love it if you could just share with our listeners a bit of your China story. I first got interested in China in the mid 1980s,、um, and、uh, at the encouragement of、uh, a grandfather who had come back from Ch- a visit to China, and told me、uh, what he saw and how it was changing from. Uh, the Mao era, and that was still in the mid '80s when when when、uh, there were just micro steps、uh, being done. But I went to, to on a study abroad program in 1988 in China and got addicted, and the rest is history. I spent the next、uh, uh, couple decades figuring out how to avoid getting a real job,、uh, and so continued to study Chinese in、uh, mainland China and Taiwan. Worked in a think tank,、uh, went back to grad school. Um, and then,、uh, as you mentioned,、uh, was a professor at Indiana University for 15 years before、uh, coming here to CSIS、uh, in 2015. And is there one year in particular that you have found most interesting over the past、uh, few decades of、uh, of looking at Chinese political economy? Oh, geez, there's so much that's happening in China every year. China is about change, and in fact, if you try and look at China as、uh, you know a series of of pictures. You kind of miss the whole whole point of the of the place. It's really、uh, a movie、uh, that that's so dynamic, and you could just pick about any time that's particularly interesting. I would say two thousand one stands out because at least you know that was the year China joined the WTO, which、uh, China had prepared a lot for it,、uh, but nevertheless,、uh, the joining of the WTO itself was, was critically important for China's economy and, and the world's economy, and then.、Uh, Late twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, the ascendance of Xi Jinping、uh, certainly, I think, has、uh, dawned a new era in China. Not everything is different、uh, under Xi, but some trends uh, which uh, were started before regarding、uh, the role of the state in the economy have just expanded dramatically. And so, I, I would put you know twenty two thousand one and twenty thirteen up right up there as as two years that were p- pivotal. Since I've been looking at the country, great. Thanks for that. So let's、uh, fast forward to the present and your recent report on innovation. So first off,、um, why study in- Chinese innovation now? Sure. Well, China's come a long way, and when I first started going to China,、uh, there were no private cars.、Uh, there、uh, were these old-fashioned buses.、Uh, The Beijing subway was two lines, which didn't get you to many interesting places in the city.、Um, uh, China had、uh, still 700 million rural inhabitants back then. Its per capita income was just a few hundred uh, dollars uh, per year,、uh, and we saw China as a development story. And we looked around. You know, what does it take to get countries to develop? Well.、Uh, Most、uh, in the in the intervening thirty years now, China has become in most in many parts of the country a developed country. Beijing is a developed city, and it has almost thirty million people, larger 
than the population of many countries. And so uh, China is is no longer just a development story. It is uh, a leader in, in many areas. It is a competitor in many areas. It's, it collaborates. Um, and secondly, uh, the... Um, you know, the challenges that China's economy faces and that many of us face now around the world are about productivity. Uh, how do you improve productivity when you've already, uh, you know, ed- high, uh, major uh, populace, much more educated than they were in the past, and you've um, invested a lot in basic infrastructure? How do you keep uh, growth going? Uh, for, for China's case, it's how do you avoid falling into the middle income trap, which has befallen most countries. Uh, very few have risen out of that to high income level status. Uh, and technology innovation is a central part of the solution. It's not the only part uh, by any means, but it's, it's, it's super important. And given the size of China, um, anything that it does in any industry uh, is going to have global implications. So the, our interest in innovation uh, stems from, uh, you know, China's movement uh, toward a new level of growth, uh, the, the need for it to raise productivity and the implications uh, that China's innovation drive has on everybody else. Great. So one of the, uh, the, the things you focus on your, in your report is what you're calling a techno-nationalist ideology. And I'm curious if you could explain that and perhaps compare it to past big PRC-led um, industrial pushes that have defined a lot of the country's 20th century economic history. Sure. Well, uh, techno-nationalism is, is not new to China. Uh, it goes uh, way back. Um, and uh, a lot of people have written about Chinese techno-nationalist policies. Basically, the idea is, is that technology and national security are intertwined and, and that even though globalization is important uh, for moving up the value-added chain, for diffusion of knowledge, for collaboration, uh, promoting uh, technological advancement serves uh, the national interests uh, and therefore it's important that Many of the technologies which are critical to economic development uh, that also are important to state national security are domestically controlled. Uh, and that's a, a, that goes back to, I mean, just at a minimum, if you, if you go back to the Opium War of 1840, 1842 or so, when China uh, was, uh, you know, the Qing was shown to be extremely weak and China then started a drive to, to address its its gaps in weaknesses in science and then in, in the military space, and uh, but and certainly under the PRC, uh, beginning with its nuclear program to develop nuclear weapons and other things in the 1960s, we've seen this. Uh, Evan Feigenbaum has written a terrific book about techno nationalism, which everyone should go see, as uh, now at the Paulson Institute. Uh, but um, this uh, effort that they have now is distinctive for a couple reasons. The, the first is is that China is starting from a, a, a relatively positive base. Uh, it's it's not the the weaker economy that it used to be. It's it's much stronger, and it's targeting um, uh, the core technologies uh, that provide productivity and competitiveness for the United States, Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere, uh, and, and therefore it raises challenges for, for those economies. 
uh, I guess the last reason is is even though we think of China as as big uh, economically, it's not been a, a large country globally uh, at least in the past hundred years. But China's share of GD, global GDP uh, has risen dramatically. It's the number at least the number two size economy in the world. It's the world's largest trader. Uh, it is a growing participant in international investment, outward investment. Last year uh, was, I believe, number two. Uh, even though this year Chinese outward investment has has declined uh, for a variety of reasons, it's going to continue to track up. So the consequences of what China does is is much larger than it's ever been before. Two of the big changes you focus on in your report are IP and uh, financing, which have gone have changed a lot over the past few years. So I'm curious if you, if you could uh, walk us through uh, the policy developments and the developments in the marketplace in those two fields. Of course, of course. Well, uh, you know, uh, students of innovation d- divide uh, what you analyze into two buckets. The first are inputs, the things that uh, countries, um, governments, uh, the private sector put into trying to innovate. And the second bucket is on outputs. Most important kind of inputs usually are human capital uh, and and money. Um, and we, we don't focus a lot in this report on human capital, although I do think it's an extremely important story. And there's a lot of innovation in uh, education in China, in in uh, workplace training, there's also a big gap in human capital uh, between urban China and rural China. The proportion of students that go to high school, for example, uh, are it's almost 100% in urban China. It's around 30% in rural China. So it's a huge gap that needs to be addressed. Uh, but but we focus on uh, finance in particular as an input. And then I think people know that spending in China has, has risen dramatically and that um, it's not only uh, spending on R&D by uh, government agencies, companies, uh, as well as universities and research institutions spend quite a bit. China's, China now spends equivalent, you know, very similar to what OECD countries spend in terms of uh, R&D as a percentage of, of GDP. And we've seen an evolution of uh, fundraising sources, venture capital, private equity are much larger than they were in the past. At the same time, uh, the efficiency of the spending, the uh, adventurousness of the spending is, is uh, we, we, we question. Um, although uh, venture capital and private equity have boomed in China, these are not particularly adventurous venture capitalists. Um, on uh, as as we found when we were doing the report uh, about, you know, most uh, of these investors are looking for for good returns, and they they don't like to invest in in technologies which have have very which don't have a proven commercial uh, consequence. What they do is they look for for technologies that have a market, uh, but where the company hasn't executed a commercial strategy very well. And so what they, they, yeah, they the, fo- um, uh, focus on scaling up. Yeah. One of the, one of the striking quotes from your report was, uh, from a, from a anonymous VC saying, we don't invest in zero to one. We invest in one to a hundred. Do you have any sense of, 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 of why the risk tolerance seems to be different from, uh, Silicon Valley firms? Sure. Sure. Well, I would say, you know, uh, to be fair, Chinese aren't totally different, but the the focus on on commercial investment and and the the very small proportion of angel investors that do very early stage investment, I, I think, comes from uh, sort of what the risk matrix is, 
risk matrix is in, in China. In China. And you can make money investing in a variety of different ways. You can um, invest in, in something that, that gives you a small return or a small margin, but scale up and, and through volume make a lot of money. You can also depend on political connections, regulatory benefits, and, and you know gain a monopoly or some type of regulatory advantage. Um, and thirdly, you can innovate. You can bring something new to the market. You can test it uh, out. You can see how it works and, and benefit from the IP or from something or, or just from having something that's totally new. In China, the third option has not been favored a lot because the first two have been proven money makers. You can make a ton of money with small margins and high volumes in China and uh, political connections can help quite a bit. Now, maybe that seems somewhat challenging now in the era of Xi Jinping and the crackdown on corruption, but nevertheless, um, the third option uh, which uh, based on innovation is, is is riskier. Now, China does protect IP better than it has in the past, although there's still significant problems, but it is much riskier. And what we noticed with uh, venture capitalists is that the proportion of projects that yield a return in high tech versus traditional industries is about the same, uh, which is quite different from the United States, where the likelihood of success in a high tech venture is much lower, which makes sense because you're dealing with a unproven uh, technology, at least commercially. Uh, so that that suggests that that Chinese uh, cap, venture capitalists aren't very adventurous. The in terms of IP, uh, China's prom, uh, you know promoted uh, changing its laws uh, for trademarks, copyrights, patents, uh, trade secrets. Uh, at the same time, though, and we've also seen a great deal of patenting. China's now the world's number one filer of patents, but the value of those patents are are minuscule compared to the number. Uh, so if you're talking about the value of patents in M and A deals, uh, they're almost non-existent in China. Uh, if you uh, if there's a patent infringement case in China, you get uh, very little. Even when you win the case in the United States, the average uh, award for a, a plaintiff seeking relief is seven point three million. In China, it's under a hundred thousand renminbi. So uh, you know that uh, very small numbers. Uh, and and then in licensing, China has a very small IP licensing market, and its global trade and licensing is, shows a massive trade deficit, which shows that many people around the world aren't paying China a lot for, for licensing fees uh, relative to what China pays to others. Uh, and so there's been progress at the macro level, but these are still two areas of, of, of amazing inefficiencies. So um, one of the things you did in your report was put together uh, or combine a lot of different methodologies to measure national innovation. So um, one of them, you, you just mentioned the um, uh, patent filing uh, rankings, but I'm curious if you could walk us through uh, some more of these methodologies and, and uh, contextualize China a little bit within its, uh, uh, with other uh, major, major economies. Sure, sure, Jordan. That's a, we, that's a very good question. And it, because it's very difficult to assess broadly China's trajectory. We, we can look at individual companies, individual industries, uh, and, and tell a story. You could tell a positive story or a negative story. And, and in the years I've been following China, I've, I've heard a lot of both. But getting your arms around the overall trajectory of China is, is particularly hard. And so we, as a first cut for this report, focus on these global innovation indices, which uh, have a lot of different uh, components to them cover a lot of different countries. Uh, these indices have been uh, 
adopted and, and measured for about the last decade or so. So we look at five of them, uh, one from the World Economic Forum. There's one from the University of Toronto called the Creativity Index um, and a few others. But the, the index that we end up settling with is called the Global Innovation Index, which is put together by the World Intellectual Property Organization, INSEAD, which is a business school in Europe and Cornell University's business school. And the Global Innovation Index has 103 components, uh, a bunch on the input side, a bunch of measures on the output side. And uh, it looks at everything from uh, money, uh, students uh, that you have in science and engineering, um, outputs like published papers, patents, uh, creative works, movies, uh, commercial impacts, uh, etc., and, and it covers a wide stream of uh, wide spectrum of countries. I think about 128 were in the most recent uh, year's data that, that we looked at. And basically what that shows is, is that China, whether you're looking at inputs or outputs, has de- separated itself from other emerging economies like uh, India, Brazil, Russia, and is approaching, uh, but not yet arrived at, the levels of innovation of advanced industrialized economies in the North Atlantic uh, and in East Northeast Asia. At the same time, there do appear to be a whole variety of potential weaknesses uh, because the rate in which China is improving on the input side is much greater than the rate in which it's improving on the output side. And that's why we see what what this level of inefficiency in the transition translation between inputs and outputs and why we call China a fat tech dragon. Great. Thanks for that. So, uh, so Scott, what's next for the uh, research program? Apparently this is the first of, of, of seven uh, reports to be coming out on this topic. Yeah, well, we, we hope even more than that. Um, I guess uh, to, you know, just to, to, to put, uh, a fine point on it. Our focus in this initiative is is not to uh, be lawyerly uh, to identify where we think China is being fair, where it's breaking the rules. We already accept that uh, China's uh, policies, because it's techno-nationalist, are discriminatory in many ways. Uh, but uh, what we want to try and find out is is what are the commercial consequences of what China's doing? Is what it's doing working? Uh, and to the extent that it's not working, how should it change? Uh, and what are the co- implications of that for the United States, uh, for others, both governments and for, for, for companies? So the next stage um, are six reports on different industries in, in China. Uh, new new generation vehicles, which are, include both ev- electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Then uh, commercial aircraft, pharmaceuticals, the Internet. Um, semiconductors, and artificial intelligence. In each of these areas, these, uh, the nature of these industries and technologies are somewhat different from each other. And so we're expecting to see a range of, of Chinese success in these different areas. Uh, I just spent 10 days in China uh, looking at new generation vehicles, uh, interviewed companies, uh, industry associations, government officials, consultants, came away with a really interesting picture of the trends there. Um, Once we finish these uh, six industry reports, hopefully we'll have a new wave of research that looks at China and global innovation, Chinese R&D abroad, 
R&D by multinationals and others in China. How does China fit into that mix? We want to go back and look at these indices, which are part of this initial report, and see if we might be able to find a way to improve upon them. Because these are not perfect indices. As I mentioned, they almost all depend on the number of patents filed as a component. And there's other ways in which one can look at knowledge creation, uh, not just patented technology, but also what people call tacit knowledge, the knowledge gained through the manufacturing of process and experience. So uh, we're going to be hopefully looking at these sectors first, and then global, uh, uh, China and global innovation. And we'll have reports along the way. We have a, a cool microsite we're putting together, uh, and we'll be interacting with folks in China uh, in the region and in the United States as we work on on this initiative. So we're hopeful uh, that anyone who's listening uh, would reach out to us. We are always in the mode of, of needing to learn. Uh, and so uh, we appreciate the uh, opportunity. Great. And, and uh, what's the what's the URL for the mini website? Uh, the URL is uh, www.cips hyphen csis.org. Awesome. Thanks for that, Scott. So um, I already got one book recommendation out of you, the Evan Feigenbaum's uh, Chinese techno-nationalism story. But if you want to uh, throw one more out there before we, uh, before we call it a day. Well, um, I would say, uh, you know, if you want a, a general the overview of China's economy, Arthur Krober's uh, recent book on, on China's economy uh, is, is fantastic and it has uh, a, a discussion of technology and innovation as well as a lot of the other issues uh, that China's economy is facing. As we, as I tried to mention at the beginning, you know, China's core problem is productivity. It doesn't, it hasn't had any, uh, all of its growth lately has been through more inputs, not through productivity gains. Uh, and so whether you're talking about technology or about SOEs or, um, the HUCO system, or whatever, uh, understanding what those things mean for productivity is, is critical. And Arthur's book uh, provides a, a, a very good look into that. I'll just say uh, my, for myself, uh, I just had a book that was published last week on Chi- called China and Global Governance, The Dragon's Learning Curve, which looks at how Chinese are moving up the learning curve in global governance in a lot of different areas, um, including in technology, but also food security, uh, in finance, in international trade. Uh, and, and so that's an edited volume with a lot of good contributions from Chinese scholars uh, at Beida, uh, to it from Beida, uh, one from Fudan, uh, and, and several from the United States, Europe, uh, and Japan. So uh, sorry to make a shameless plug for my own book as well. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll, uh, we'll take it. Thanks so much, Scott, for your time. Uh, good talking to you, Jordan. Thanks so much.